I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ludovico Antonori, the co-founder of Tunuta de Bizerno in the Maremma, and also the original founder of Ornalaya in Bulgari. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very nice to see you. So you're the younger brother of Piero Antonori. Yes, I am. And your dad was Niccolo. Yes, it was Niccolo, yes. So he was the guy who really did a lot of innovations for the Antonori family firm in terms of wine. Like he introduced the Santa Cristina. Yes. He did that. Santa Cristina, Villantinori, they became a benchmark of the time. But I think so the most important thing that he managed to accomplish before he, he left us was Tignanello. It was uh, Sangiovese with a portion of Cabernet Sauvignon. It was an enologist um, from Bordeaux who taught us a few things about malolactic. So it is a very important benchmark that Tignanella would say, and my father's signature is on the label. The first vintage of that would have been 71, right? 71. At that time, that was kind of when the, you and your brother had started to also emerge into the company. Yes, I was working in Salem and Tignanella from 69, 70. I came to America when I was very, very young, and I did a tour, which was one of the most interesting experiences of my life. Uh, I was giving it a car and uh, a map, and I had to tour uh, all over the United States in 12 months. And from city to city, uh, I had to connect with the distributor and making promotion and especially learning a lot about what was going on then in this country with the wine. Because you would have been in an era of Antonori that was more about the Santa Cristina and the Villa Antonori, because you left right about the time Tignanello was released, right? Like 74? Yes, yes. When I came back, Tignanello was in the process of getting you know, together and uh, release, and it was in this preparation stage. When I, I was working here, Tignanello was not even in the, in the picture then. But from my feedback that I was giving back the company, they understood that there was a time to get away from the traditional straw bottle of Chianti uh, to the fish bottle 
of Elba Island white wine that I was so ashamed of it here, that people were buying it not so much for the wine, but to take home and put a candle on it in their living room. And that was the fish bottle. Ah, you have the produce of the fish bottle. Nice. My wife liked it so much. I can make a lampshade out of it. So I got my first frustration when I was hearing those type of comment, how the Italian wine was perceived then was really bad. Was the the lowest, I think so, uh, moment. I came from Europe and I had uh, self-confidence representing a wine family with an history and recognition. And I came to America thinking that the same thing would have happened here. Instead, it was a different story. That's why I believe it was so formative for me to come in that moment because my brother was living mostly in Italy and going to places where he was immediately welcome, applauded. Ah, oh, Mr. Antinori, him is a... Instead, I'd, I came from the, from the back door in an era and in a situation which was absolutely not very favorable. And uh, that, I think, so was very formative for me for the future. Because looking at the export numbers for Antinori, the company, in 85, it's about, you know, 15% sales to the United States and about 70% sales in Italy. And then by 2000, those have reversed. So it's about 70% sales in the United States and and around 15% in Italy. Yeah, took a long time before Antinori could make a breakthrough in this country. Took a long time. So what was your dad Niccolo like as a person? What was he like? My father was um, a personality representing, I think, so the his century. He was born in the 19th century at the end of it, and he was formed in a military school. He went to war as a volunteer in the First World War, uh, not because he was obliged, but he went because he believed in uh, helping the Italian at the time against the Austrian. We wanted to get rid of the Austrian uh, sovereignty in the northeast of Italy, and he went there as a volunteer. So he came back and uh, he had a lot of appraisal. And he was, you know, forming the military school and um, he was a man of order and patriotic, but very international at the same time. And uh, his main concern was what can we do to make Italy perceive and accepted internationally in a different way than it is now? He understood the high potential of the Italian people, uh, Italy per se, but uh, the poor image that Italy had was uh, something that all his life uh, haunted him. You know, sometimes Italians were very badly pictured at the time uh, in the neighboring country like Germany or Switzerland. So my father was always in the movement to protect those immigrants who had a hard life. And he ended up marrying someone from the Della Gardesca family. Yeah, he married Charlotte de la Gardesca, which was half American. The mother was American, the father was de la Gardesca, which is a large land-owning family of the coastal area. There were um, German soldiers of fortune who came to Italy in the year 1000, I think so. They were also mentioned in Dante Alighieri Inferno. Uh, They never became very, very wealthy because the area where they were Agriculture was very poor. Swamp and marshes, forest, and, but not very good forest. You know, so they, 
they never really, you know, was, was not a very enriching landscape. It was a poor area. At the time, there was no tourism. There was only hunting, and that's it. I mean, so they, they live a frugal life. I mean, but my, my mother was born in Paris, and um, she lived uh, a lot with a sister. Two girls were born out of this marriage. One is the, in Chisa, and the other one in So they married two, two men, differently, both with a lot of personality. Mario and Chisa, my godfather, a great personality, a man of great intelligence, which I admire a lot, and I got along with him very much. He was very, not so easy for his children. So was my father with me, not so easy with me, but probably he was very good with the children of the other, you know, brother-in-law. It happened sometime at the time of that generation we were very, in a little bit, in, almost in um, competition with the children. So there was a tight relationship. Instead, with your uncle, you didn't have that competition and the relation became much easier. So that's why there was neighboring properties in Bulgaria. Yes, the two sisters got half property each. At one point, those swamps and marshes were drained by the Austrians, right? They were drained by the help of the, yes, the Austrian branch of the Habsburg called Lorena Lottinger, the husband of Maria Theresa, emperor of Austria, was Lottinger, which is today Alsace. It was a Germanic province in France, and they were the biggest producer of cannons and uh, metalware. And the, the marriage uh, was arranged between Mr. Lottinger and Maria Teresa, thinking that they could sell a lot of cannon. But as you know, Maria Teresa is the peace time queen, so he didn't sell any cannon at all because it was 35 years of peace with under a reign. And uh, the, in the nephew got Tuscany for about two generations, father and son. They did very well. They ran it very well with a lot of typical Habsburg administration skill. They had the famous uh, 3F that Leopoldo uh, said, I know how to run this region with the 3F. So people were asking, what is the 3F? And he said, F for forca, which means hang people, F for party, feste, and F for farina, which is weed. So in Italian, the three F was farina, feste, forca. So I give them a lot of party to have great time. The Florentine, they were making feast every three weeks, never starving. But if you make a mistake, you're going to be in trouble. It was, uh, but it was a good way to run the time. And they never been resented. This is, a, you know, from Tuscany, they're a very rebellious uh, group of people. And the Lorena, they always have been welcome and... Uh, I mean, an exceptionally nice period that Tuscany had under their sovereignty because they organized things. Uh, they start thinking not like the Medici, only about Florence, the bank and the art. They think how to make train, how to drain the swamp, how to do this and that. And now today we are still living with a lot of things that they did with that sort of, it was like a little empire, but leaving a lot of money into Tuscany. That's why there are letters that my father read to me that Austria was always claiming, send us more money. And uh, the Lottinger instead got so involved with Tuscany that he wanted the money to remain, to invest it in this place that he got, but he felt responsible for this. And I think it was beautiful. It's always this dilemma of sending the money to Austria and keeping it there to make improvement. 
So that's probably why a lot of Bulgari was planted to wheat. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's why the reason, yes. As was olive, vineyards, and wheat, the three things living together. So it was not an, a total, it was something for the sharecropping system to survive. Do you know what grape varieties those would have been? They use Sangiovese, as, as, of course. And uh, Sangiovese, as my uncle, Marion Schiza, discovered in Bulgaria, did really bad. Uh, it's one of the few areas in Tuscany where Sangiovese really didn't please it, itself to be in that microclimate and soil. So when he arrived, he decided to eradicate it and to plant the French variety. That was the beginning of the Bulgaria becoming known to be very, very potentially very good for French varietal, for Bordeaux varietal, let's call it. My uncle at the time uh, of history was more fascinated for him. He, was, he loved uh, Bordeaux. That was the story of the Sangiovese ending, and now no one has Sangiovese anymore in Bulgaria, and everybody is planting, and it's becoming a DOC with French varietal as one of the few in Italy. So did you used to drink Sasakaya as a family wine before it was released commercially? Absolutely. They run for lunch with no label, and you could drink this wine. Everybody would say, oh, my God, how good this wine is, you know. And so he got praise and praise and praise. And then because he had a little bit of a snob toward the British, and he was the president in Italy of the World Wildlife Foundation, Italian chapter, and the inauguration, Prince Philip from England came, there was a, a big lunch da, up there where they live in uh, Villa Poggio in Bulgaria. And then uh, the Prince uh, Philips uh, made praise about the wine, how good it was. And after that, my uncle decided, Prince Philip has acknowledged, I think so probably I am I'm ready to put it on the markets a little bit. So the story says that that was the moment that he decided he was convinced to to commercialize a little bit of, of his private reserve. So what happens for you in the mid-70s? It was one of the, probably, the period of my life which was, let's say, um, with less uh, responsibility and, uh, and task. I was in between two periods of my life and I did the cinematography, a little bit of traveling around. It was, I did photography, a little journalism. I did, you know, those type of experience on the side to test myself, my limit. And then uh, while I was in California, I also visit obviously the wine area, which I like very much, the approach, the way that they approached the wine industry there, the way that it was so open and, and relaxed and happy and casual and not uh, uh, as uh, austere as in Palazzo Antinori. So I liked it very much and I got an inspiration to... One day I want to do something with that spirit and not the austere, boring clothes um, like I was raised in that uh, type of... Uh, the wine was an element that I like enormously in, in various forms. Taste, production, sale, marketing, in many forms it was fascinating me. And I experienced many forms of the wine studying new varietal, nothing special. Today, I mean, a lot of people are doing what I was doing, but at my time, there were not very many. I was one of the unique in Italy to be so open to visit the uh, area around the world. So the 70s were for me like a learning period of uh, then uh, being able to decide with the help of Andrei Chelichev 
an American uh, winemaker, Russian, but American uh, in, professionally. He really achieved his results in California. He is the one who really pushed me to stay in Bulgaria and to develop this project of Ornelaya, which was an incredible success story. I mean, I'm very proud to have made it. I'm a little bit more sad to have sold it, but I'm proud to have made it. And uh, I still today, I, I can see Maceto, especially the position that he has reached internationally with the wine collectors. It's amazing how Maceto has a place of his own and is not even perceived as an Italian wine, but people buy it like it would be an extension of a French Pomerol because it costs almost like a top Pomerol wine these days, Maceto. So when I planted in those 20 acres of clay, there is always an objective they wanted to try to copy, to emulate. And Petrus was the emulation, obviously, because I was making pure Merlot. So what else could have been, you know, of a target better than, than a Petrus? So the creation part, I'm a creative person, not a businessman. So I did my portion of creation, creating the Masseto, which I think so for Italian wine industry is something even... Although it doesn't have uh, autochthonous varietal, it doesn't matter. It's an incredible product coming out of Maremma. So originally you were thinking about doing a project in Napa for a while, right? Not in Napa, in Central Coast. I had wine, uh, which I love very much, and they were made in Paso Roble, California. And I thought that wine really was... Uh, it was a Zinfandel, by, but made by Cherichev, which I didn't know he was then. And the wine was a perfection, a perfection that I never forget. The taste of that wine was extraordinary. So I said, if this wine can come from an area, let's go and see the area and let's meet the winemaker. So I, I, I went to the area. I remember very well, it was um, Hoffman Mountain Ranch. Uh, Hoffman was the owner. He was a surgeon of a heart from Los Angeles who bought that estate as a hobby. I hired Cherichev to take care of his winery. And then they produced the Zinfandel, which I never had since anything similar as a elegant and taste. It tastes more like a Medoc than a Zinfandel from California. And therefore, I I wanted to meet uh, Andrei Cherichev, and I did, and our relation, our friendship started from that moment. What was he like as a person? He was extraordinary as a person, extraordinary, humanistic, hyper-cultivated, intelligent, open, and incredible knowledge of nature in general, not only the wine, but he taught me about the birds, about the trees, about a lot of things. It was a great... A friend, an older man, because he has the, the age of my father, but he became a friend and a, and a tutor for me. He's big. I learned a lot from him. So you see, I was academically, I'd never been a great student, but I had been lucky to have been able to do this experience in America, traveling and learning a lot of human thing. Because when you travel in a country like that in the seventy, you can imagine how many experience I went through good or bad. And, um, and then this uh, long affiliation with Andrei Cherichev, which lasted uh, from uh, 82 to uh, 90. So almost a decade. 
that I was working for him and he spent, he was already retiring in America, so he had time. He was spending a month and a half, the month of May, he was spending it in Italy in my house with the wife and uh, we traveled together, we went to see Venice, I took him to a wine area that he never in his life even heard about it, the Friuli and things like that. So we did a lot of incredible trip and people all accepted him, opened their cellar, opened their house, giving an incredible welcoming because he was such a warm personality and very humble because he could have been, first of all, he never thought about the money because uh, if he had more of an American mentality, he could have become a millionaire with the position he had. Instead, he died poor because he never really cared about you know accumulation of money. He just cared about making something beautiful. And he was because he's the one who really created the Napa wine culture in a way with the Beaulieu vineyards. And he encouraged you to go back and plant in Bulgari. Yeah, he said, stay here, young man. You have an Eldorado here. I remember that phrase. And so he gave me the last push to stay there in Bulgaria. It was a legacy I had to to keep going. It would have been, uh, it's ridiculous to have gone from my position to to Central Coast, although it would have been good to have one or the other. I asked my brother, why don't we do it together? But then at the time, even himself, he was not ready probably to do it with me. Uh, he wanted to generate his own persona and he didn't like any affiliation with anybody. Now, getting older, we are affiliated together now again. But at the time, he was he wanted to create his own niche, etc. So he wasn't ready for that. He wanted to do something on his own. But we we missed because that Central Coast is really an incredible wine area. So, what were your first moves there when you wanted to break the ground, build the winery plant at Ornelia? Um, the first move was, well, I tell you what happened. I was going hunting traditional, when you are a kid, a young person, you go hunting the wild boar, which is very predominant there. And I was going on a tree, waiting for the wild boar, and I was, you know, waiting a couple of hours in which nothing happened, and you have to look nature. And I was observing that nature, and it was totally abandoned land. And more and more I was going there in the evening, I saw certain things about that land, and I asked then my mother, if she wouldn't mind to give it to me because no, but nothing was happening there. It was an abandoned, full of bush. It was, it was a former uh, wheat and olive land, but then it was abandoned. So, But the soil was, I understood it could have been very good for wine. Chilichev was helping me in planting, you know, starting, selecting what we could select at the time, the varietal, also, he brought along an engineer from Napa Valley who designed and created the winery because I did one of the first, uh, let's call it, designer winery. And everybody didn't like it. And now the time has so changed. If you don't have a designer winery, you are no one. So originally you thought of the whole property as a Cabernet property. Cabernet property. Then we saw that uh, portion of it completely different within a, an estate that three different soil and one of the soil was very blue clay and uh, so we said what are we going to do with this and uh, decided to go to Merlot you know Merlot for the blending of the product not to make it the Merlot alone that was we planted the Merlot and that when I asked um, Michel Roland to come to work it was already in the year 
90, Sherichev was getting old. He was not coming often anymore. And um, because of the Merlot project, I wanted to have someone from Pomerol to help me. And Michel Roland was available at the time. He was not very famous at all. He was just famous locally. He was not yet the traveling, flying uh, winemaker as he, as he was named afterwards. And uh, he accepted and I think that was one of the first to really give it the idea that he could get out of France and do consultancy. And so he started, and now. So Emile Peinot came and gave you some advice at one point, right? No, Peinot was the man responsible for teaching our Takis, Giacomo Takis, enologist of Antinori, how to handle the malolactic, because it was not so known, ridiculous, I mean, thinking about today. We are talking about 70s, and the Italian didn't know how to handle malactic fermentation, and it was done through the system of Chianti, which was Ripasso and stuff like that. And Pinot came and explained rationally how to handle malactic. So Pinot was very, very important for the Antinori, the starting of the Tignanello, because Tignanello was really the first wine where the malolactic was done with the right uh, yeast, the right timing, the temperature to make it really happening in a natural way. So Pinot was very important for that part. He really helped us to do that. But it, not with Ornelia. He, was, he helped my family in developing Tignanello. Tignanello was a project which was my father, Pinot, Takis, my brother, the four of them created the Tignanello. I'm not at all responsible for that project, except that I have sent the, all the feedback that what we needed to be done out of Italy was a wine with more international acceptance. Less Chianti, less diff, you know, Chianti was difficult, was harsh, was very difficult for the American palate to, uh, to really enjoy it because it was too tannic and too, the tannin were very rough at the time. They were um, probably harvesting too early. You know, there was a lot of element that didn't make the wine palatable for the American palate. So that's why I think Sotinello came right on time to be more internationally accepted. And now it's a great success for Antinorio because, I mean, yeah, they really, it's the brand of glory for, for my family company, I would say, Tignanello really is. So what was Giacomo Takis like in the 70s and 80s as a person? He was, he was more than an enologist, he was nicknamed the architect because he was managing to get wine from various areas and putting them together to create the Villa Antinori, Santa Cristina. It was not wine who came from our estate only. They had to be purchased in various areas, and that was really specialty. The architect meant that you had to put many areas together. The law were different. You could do things that you cannot do today. And uh, so the possibility to go and purchase grape from various geographical areas was allowed. And uh, he was the master blender, let's call it. He was, that he was his genius because he always kept a style in his, in his mind. So he wanted to remain Chianti, but with the help of other area and blending in a way that Chianti was not uh, um, non-recognizable. It was a privet, but made it much more round and much more uh, and less tannic. So it, it was very good for that. that Giacomo Takis was extraordinary for that. He had an incredible sense of blending. So 
your first winemaker at Ornelia was Tibor Gall? No, the first winemaker at Ornelia was a man called Staderini. He was a student from the University of Agriculture of Florence. He was the preferred student of the dean, and he recommended to hire him. He was a very good uh, person, but a little bit too eccentric and not very practical. So he was more of a professor type than a practical man. You know, I think so the history of Ornelia is a history of people, and each one brought his own share of talent, competence, and quality. And so I would say not one was outstanding. Uh, each one was the right person at the right time, I would say. So Staderini was really at the beginning uh, when we were still plowing, you know, to put the planting and uh, everything was starting. And then uh, Tibor Gal came along, and uh, that also was through hunting. I went to Hungary hunting. I tasted the wine in uh, one of the Eger wine. It's a cooperative. Um, but he was very, very gifted for the white wine, the Riesling and all those wines. Because when I tasted the wine, and there were four winemakers, and I always say, who did that? And also the the hand was raised, and it was Tibor. He was the youngest, but he certainly had a knack for the white wine. And uh, so uh, I wanted to innovate, to give to Italy wine world with the same people all the time, that they were working everywhere. There were five names. I said, I want to try and bring someone from Hungary. I mean, he seemed to be intelligent. Why not? And uh, he was, and he came. He learned Italian very quick. He brought the family. And uh, he did a good job, especially on the white wine. We had a white wine called Poggio Legazze, Sauvignon Blanc. And it was extraordinary for the white wine because it was quick. Uh, needed uh, timing and the sensibility. He was not a patient person, so he was not so good for the red where you need to do also the, all the, the so growing stage of a year in the barrique. You have to check them. And he, he was, uh, for the red, he didn't have patient enough. So the red were not his forte, although we made some good Ornelia. But probably the better came later than he, when he left. There was a man called Giovannini that no one has heard about it because Tibor was a great self-promoter. He was coming to America, making, because he was always thinking in two different ways. He was thinking about what he was doing at the same time to do something on his own. So uh, wherever he was there, he was distracted. And he did, uh, to make money, he was buying used equipment, equipment, of course, for winery and for viticulturists in Italy, and he was selling it to Hungary. He did a business of that to raise capital and to eventually to form his own winery, which he did later on. So in, in his mind, it was always dual. A little part was there and a little bigger part was at home. And I felt that more and more in the later years, so we got a little bit of falling off for that reason. And I hired as Giovannini, was a young uh, enologist from Trento. He was the opposite of Tibor, very, very careful and meticulous and very soft-spoken very shy, no one ever heard of him. You have probably never heard of Giovannini. No journalists have never reported about him, but he has the one who made 97, 98, 99 Ornelia, which are probably the best of my era, those three wines. Giovannini was a man of order, 
uh, was Michelinon giving order and he was executing then. Tibor was Leo, Leo signed, Leo very, you know, strong, I'm the best. So he didn't accept most of the uh, advice that uh, Roland was giving. He did on his own, and then he was leaving the place. The, sometime the air conditioning broke, the temperature went haywire. We had problem with actually uh, volatile, volatile acidity, because it's all those things. But you know they are part of the history. Uh, when we do vertical tasting, you recognize those things, but you have to go to a vertical tasting. Otherwise, you know. The image is still high. I know I, I go around and people still ask me, and I see they have like a veneration for Tibor Gal, which is good. I'm happy because he's not here with us anymore. I'm very happy that he had such a reputation and I have to say, I give it to him. So I'm very happy about that, that he's still recognized as a great man. He was a, he was a capable person for sure. But who made the 88? Because I really like the 88. The 88 was made by Chili Chef, 88, yeah. Because it's a classic tannin profile that shifts a little bit. The tannins change later by the 90s. The tannin profile changed by the 90s. They became a little bit, uh, we harvested a bit later, and, you know, we changed that profile because of that. So a little more alcoholic, but more the tannin were more, you know, Roland style. So for me, I mean, it would have been a, an amazing time to be in charge of Warren Alive because it really took off, yeah. like uh, internationally. Yes. With the respect and the, there was a real sense that it was one of the top yes. with Sasakaya, with Tininello, Ornelaya. And people had their own order for those three wines. Yeah. But it, I feel like that was the holy trio, right? Yes. Yes. You're right. Absolutely. When did you first start to realize that? that it was going to work out like that. Because I think a lot of people made a super Tuscan subsequently and weren't as successful. After 95, I realized that really it was a movement uh, to create it. The Maceto took a little bit longer, but when it did, it exploded. But it took a little bit longer because people were, wanted to have a blended wine at first rather than to have a single varietal. They were not used in Italy. And also... The Masseto was more appreciated outside of Italy at first than Italy itself. So it was more, you know, country outside of Italy. They became in love with the Masseto. One of the promoters of Masseto was a, a gentleman from Bulgaria, from Sofia in Bulgaria. Can you imagine? At the time, was just uh, of the communist. And uh, he was so in love with the Masseto that whatever he, him and a friend we're going to Vienna or to Munich to restaurant. They were screaming and, you know, a little bit vulgar. Said, you have Maceto here? Well, no, really. Okay, goodbye. Have it. Otherwise, we don't come back. And they were screaming like that. You know, for every time they were going from uh, to do business in those two cities, they were like making a big noise and the people start to have this name. They start to be curious. And then the, the restaurateur was starting to inquire and then they bought it. So I have to to thank those two guys from Sofia because they certainly launched it in Vienna and Munich for sure because the local never heard about it and they heard it from this because they were like more free mentally in those countries. They were new money. They made it after the communists. They didn't have all those sort of background of French or this and that. They wanted to have something simple that they like it and they could remember and they could show it to their friends. And Masseto fit exactly that taste and that segment. That was the wine of their choice. <laughs> it's funny. 
because uh, in the 90s, I remember Super Tesla was being talked about as like a revolution in the market. People talked about it like it was a revolutionary thing. First of all, it was an easy way for people to identify good Tuscan wine when you had available, let's say, 300 names. People were defined, especially in this country, was they were saying this is super Tuscan and was easy for the customer to access that product because it was already a guarantee of quality. Not having the DOC or the story of France, super Tuscan became the lingo word to define a winery who has good quality, good scoring, you know, advisable, you know. So that was the super Tuscan, which helped in the market a lot because. There was a little confusion as far as Tuscan wine. People didn't know Sangiovese, why Cabernet, why Bulgari, why Montalcino. Uh, they didn't understand so much at the time. Super Tuscan was, you know, an easy package to get the deal done. In terms of understanding that area, what did you learn over time, you know, working with that different... It's a pretty complex in terms of soil, right? Yes, it's a complex soil that the small surface of the... Upper Maremma, we call it now, because the Maremma is a long, narrow uh, strip of land between the Mediterranean and the, let's say, province of Siena, the forest. And the, the lower you go in Maremma, the wider it becomes. Bulgari is the beginning of that area called Maremma. So I call it myself the Upper Maremma, and I see that people now, they have copied that denomination because it makes it easy on the map to see where we are, Upper Maremma, it's very narrow from the forest to the sea. And the area for wine growing of quality is even narrower because it has to be away from the sand. And so it makes it like, I think, so 500 hectares of very good soil. And according to Michel Roland, maximum 250 for super, super wine. You know, the smaller the production and uh, the most expensive it is, then it becomes a luxury item. And in today's society, the expensive things seem to be the most attractive for the few people who can afford them. And so uh, that worked in favor of those wine, which are very good, but also exclusivity, hard to found, you know, all those things play a role for justifying the price who goes up all the time, is the scarcity of the product. And Bulgari, per se, is a small area, so there will never be a big production. So what are the conditions in that smaller zone? Is it sea breezes, a diurnal shift? Very good question. The condition, I think, so they are the type of soil, which was alluvionale, was uh, volcanic at one point, and there's a lot of mineral in it, and uh, it is like a mosaic so you have a, an area with more percentage of uh, probably of clay, another percentage of uh, calcium, other percentage of conglomerato di bulgur, which is a stone, which is rich of mineral. And then the lower you go, this concentration of soil disappeared because there is the sand is prevailing. So we have to create the stop wine. You have to be on this sort of mix, a geological mix. In Bulgari, within one estate, over there, you can have five or six different types of soil, which that makes it fascinating, I think. So it's the secret of that uh, complexity, create layer, which is characteristic of that. But now, for instance, to tell you the truth, from Ornelaya to uh, Bizerno, which is not very far away in uh, crow flight, there is a difference in soil, not terrific, a little bit, 
but it's mostly what we have selected as rootstock and planting that makes the style different. So the base is good and could be similar, but it's important what you plant in that soil to extract different type of uh, variation in, in flavor. Ornella has a taste. I could taste the blind. I recognize it immediately. I represent that period, that sort of mix of uh, plant planted in that location. Biserno represent the soil in common, but completely different rootstock and different planting method and different planting selection as well. Ornelai, we had three different rootstock, and in Biserno, we probably have 15. So we became much more specialized to try to match each of these complicated uh, mosaic, let's call it, difference, to try to match the right rootstock for each one of them. That's a big uh, work that went into Biserno. Are some of those soil groupings more acidic than others? Like is the pH? pH, the various, yeah, quite a bit, yeah, quite a bit. Of course, near the, um, the lime, near the lime is more high the pH. Down in the, in the low elevation, we have higher pH. In the high elevation, because of drainage, the water has, you know, washed it off. We have different elements. The pH uh, is a big uh, forte in, the, in Bulgaria because the pH uh, offset the sensory feeling of high alcohol. Because when you drink a wine who has 14%, it's, it's disturbing. But if you have a good pH, you don't feel it if the temperature is correct, the, the serving temperature. You don't feel it that 14, you feel that you are drinking a 12 to 13 degree uh, wine. And this is the secret is the pH, which offset the alcoholic sensory. That you drink Spanish wine, which are 14 as well, you immediately feel the alcoholic element in those wine. And the Bulgari have this secret that Michelin said, my God, it's so rare to have that equilibrium that makes the wine, you know, that the, I mean, if you drink it in the summertime with no, uh, not at the cool uh, temperature and it's 23 the centigrade, then you feel the alcoholic uh, element then. But if you're serving it at 18 centigrade like we do, you don't feel it at all because of the pH, the acidity. You know, the acidity also is very good for longevity beside the tannin. So if I were to look at a vintage chart for Bulgari, and kind of that zone that you were talking about, what are the vintages that really stand out in your mind, either because they were really great or, or yeah, because they were really challenging? Uh, it's funny thing. This is just an, a stupid answer I give you, but it's a funny coincidence. The seven in Bulgari are never wrong. Instead, if I go back to 87, 97, 2007, and now we have 2017, which was such a dramatic uh, vintage. Everybody was, oh my God, what we're going to have a disaster, the most difficult of the century. Instead, the 2007, it's certainly 17, I mean, it will be uh, probably 30% less of production, but the quality will be excellent because again, it's a seven. But this is, this is a, like a funny thing that I tell as a tale. But so far, it, uh, let's see now. In a month's time, I will I send you an email and tell you if I was right or wrong about the 2017, if quality-wise we could put it on the league of the other seven. But I mean, the good vintages beside this is definitely starting from the 80, 87, 88, 
then uh, 95, 97, 98, and then 2006, 7, 8, 11, 13. They, so far, they have So in the late 90s, Ornelai is doing quite well in the market, and the wines are pretty good. Yes, right? yes. And you decided to sell the winery. And why did you decide to do that? Well, that was a, a little bit moment. You know, it's a question that I've been asked over and over by a lot of people. And I even, um, to my, yet to myself, really, I don't have a, a true uh, logical, rational answer to that is one of those mistakes that you make in life that you then you regret. In a way, I regret profoundly. In another way, I think that my destiny, my fate, being a creative person was, uh, for the money point of view, if I had Donnelly today, I would be a very rich man. Instead, I reinvesting in this project takes a long time. Wine is, as you know, very difficult before it gives you some. So it was draining a lot of money, that uh, this Bizerno project. So money-wise, I made definitely a mistake. But because my fate is to be creative, I think so from the creative point of view, I'm much more happy to have done Bizerno than to have kept Ornelaya uh, because I um, already had experience. All the major um, award or satisfaction that you could get in a, such a short time, I had them. It would have been difficult for me to do anything better than I already did. It would have been a status quo to have a nice life of a retired man in the country, you know, that, but uh, I didn't realize I was so old when I sold that I thought I was younger because in my mind, I still had a lot of imagination and, and fantasy. And I think so, I thought I was 10 years younger than I was. And uh, that's why I made a, a stupid decision. Rationally, I have a daughter who was born in 99. I sold it in 2001. I, my manager was killed uh, in a car accident. I had a lot of situation making it heavy. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's a lot. They probably advisor who thought, uh, let's push it to that direction. We can make money out of it. And I was a little bit naive. I didn't realize how people are greedy. And um, so, you know, it's a combination of stuff. It was my fate. I still people think I'm crazy to have done it. And probably I am a little bit, but uh, I'm very happy about what's going on with the Bizen. So the one thing that never made sense to me is why someone from the Antonori family would sell partially to the Frescobaldi family. That was always a mystery. Yeah, that's a mystery to me too, obviously, because if I knew that for sure, it would not have happened. But um, my brother at the time was not interested so much because he said, we don't buy the, the winery, we build them. So that was the answer through a banker. Um, so I had, uh, more, I felt more free. Frescobaldi was not even in the picture. Mondavi came and they did all the work and all the convincing uh, part, uh, seduction part. It was the Mondavi. We sold it to the Mondavi, not to the Frescobaldi. But then probably they have planned it together uh, behind the scene, and I didn't know that, and they screw me because then three years later they sold it to Frescobaldi. So it was a scheme probably. 
Unfortunately, it was a bad uh, thing for my family that Frisco Balibo turned a liar for myself too. It was uh, couldn't have been uh, the worst uh, punishment of my, you know, probably I shouldn't have done it. And then when you get punished like that, it's a sign that it wasn't, you were not supposed to do it. So Bizerno, the property you found while you're still at Ornelia, right? Yes, it was found in 97. Originally, you were thinking maybe to put the Bizerno property into the Ornelia project. Yes. Uh, Scanavino, my manager, the one who died, he was uh, very close to me. We got along very well. And he said to me, I found a land like Maceto. Come and, and look, because we can have a chance to lease it before it's gone. Probably Gaia is interested to lease it as well, which he leased some part below us, Gaia. But um, that part, uh, we managed to lease it ourselves. We said, we put it on hold. We never know. But then when Ornelia was sold, he said, let's go back to that and try to expand it. So did you think for a while that you might leave the wine field? Like after you sold Ornelia? No, 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 no. I wasn't ready for that at all. And no, 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 contrary. uh, I had like a reaction and uh, the desire to put uh, Cabernet Franc before I was was out of, uh, you know, out of duty uh, was an obsession for me to try to plant extensively. I was not the only one because Le Macchiole has done it. Uh, also a man called Duemani, Mr. Datoma, a few others they have done that, but in a smaller scale and not so... So I wanted to do it as well. You know, if three people are doing it and they are successful. You decided with Bizerno to really, along with Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon that you'd worked with before, to really make an effort to plant a lot of Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot, yes. That's exactly what is the difference between this and the other project that I was in, involved before. And why did you make that choice? There's actually a, a role, I have to say, I have to owe Mondavi, the younger Mondavi, Tim, uh, which is um, a very nice fellow. I like him and I respect him a lot. When he was coming at the time of uh, their purchasing, uh, we were walking to the vineyard talking about uh, agriculture, quality, soil, air, climate. And uh, he was always telling me, of course, he was grown up with the Cabernet Sauvignon in his gene. And uh, he thought that the Cabernet Sauvignon from, uh, of course, he thought in pure form, like they do there in California. We never had Cabernet, beside my uncle started in Sasika with pure form, but then they also used a little blending. But um, he thought the Cabernet Sauvignon from Bulgari, pure form, it was a little bit herbaceous. And so he said, you see, this herbaceous disturbed me here. But he he's a California grower. But he was right in the sense that, you know, I will I will really like to try some Cabernet Franc from this soil. I don't know why I have a feeling. So he himself gave me his input. I was ready already. I mean mentally. I took the the one reason I think so, Levy, why Cabernet Franc doesn't pick up as much as the Sauvignon in a lot of places is because we, as viticulturists, we have noticed that the Cabernet Franc is very uh, capricious varietal. For the farmer, a little more demanding than the Sauvignon, meaning that uh, some years it's perfect, another year could be 
It doesn't want to do much. So you don't have a consistency that most of the farmer requests from their investment, consistency and regularity and uh, yield could be, you know, give them security. The farm, we discovered, is very uh, unstable, very capricious until it reaches a certain age. Let's say we have seen a big difference between six years old and eight years old. As with the Cabernet Sauvignon, four years old doesn't make a big difference in an area like Bulgaria. You can already make a very decent wine with a four years old Cabernet Sauvignon from an area like us. As the from they needed a three full more years to really to express itself to its potential. And when you have it there, for the farming point of view, for the diseases and everything, you have to be much more careful. The skin is more thin. Is a little bit more difficult to manage. So I understand why the Cabernet Franc is only in the hand of specialists, because you cannot give it to, in our area at least, in Italy, I don't know about Bordeaux, but even in Bordeaux, Cabernet Franc is mostly in Saint-Emilion. They have a little bit in the, in the Medoc, but in the minor proportion to use to blend and to offset the Cabernet Franc. So I think so. it will never be you know, big like Cabernet, Sauvignon, Chardonnay, all over the world, they plant those two varieties. Cabernet Franc will always be in minor quantity uh, by maniac, winemaker and viticulturist, the one who really want to reach something they have in their mind. But the standard person will not approach it because it's too difficult. But I mean, I feel that way even more about Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot, yes, of course, it is. But a strange Petit Verdot in Bulgaria does so well, I'm amazed. Even in, we planted in some area where we, we didn't know. So, you know, the leftover corners that you don't plant anything of high expectation. Let's plant Petit Verdot down there. We will see. We don't expect much from it anyhow. But it does pretty good even in those areas. You know, the corners in the little edges, we put it in all those places. And uh, besides, in some... Uh, in some vintages, it can have a problem with the skin also, Petit Verdot, but we have been very, very astounded by the result because the point why the Petit Verdot is giving so much uh, joy uh, for us is that we harvest when it's fully matured. As in Bordeaux, they always harvest before the fuel maturity. Pontarlier from Chateau Margaux was telling me a great believer of Petit Verdot, a person who has insisted with me to plant it. He died, unfortunately, but he always told me, we use it for color and for longevity because it gives a certain extraction that the blend uh, needs it in Margot to give long period and also color to make a darker color. Now, in Bulgaria, we don't use it for those, those the same reason that they use there. We use it to add an element of exotic taste to it. So there's different uh, purpose to the same varietal. Over there is used for one thing, and we use it for a different purpose. So you make the three reds, the Bizerno, the Alpino, and then the Ludovico in some vintages. We have two estates now. We have Tenuta di Bizerno, who makes Ilpino di Bizerno, Bizerno, and Lodovico, three wines from the estate of 45 hectares. Then we have Tenuta Campo di Sasso, which is on the lower area, a little more sandy, probably less extraordinary terroir, but still good exposure. And we make a wine called Insolio del Cinghiale. Did you know that you were going to make the Ludovico from the no, beginning? No, we didn't know that. No, it was a bit like Masseto. 
We have this Bellaria, which was bordering with the Ornelaya, because the commune of Bulgaria ends and the Bibona commune starts, like uh, Saint-Emilio and Pomerol, so to speak. And we have, the, probably, according to Micheron, the best crew is called Bellaria, which means good air, which is a, has two sides, one south and one north. The south was used and leased by Ornelaya, my days, and it's probably create the best quality grapes that Ornelaya use in the blend. And we have leased the northern exposure, and the first name was Vigna a Nord, because we thought with the warming, you know, warming sign that we had constantly quite a bit. So I started planting at the north that would protect it from the overexposing. And it did well because it gets the sun regardless in the afternoon. But it was planted Cabernet Franc and Merlot in that uh, plot. And, uh, and I mean, the results of those two things, combination, uh, I used it at first. In some vintages, we used a little bit of Merlot also, in, you know, the week of very minor part. Some vintage, not at all. But Michel Roland, which is involved, but with a lot of control of myself, because he wanted to park her eyes too much. So I said, no, 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 Ludovico will be a different style. It will be a style of what I think it will be the style of the future, because Parker represents the style of the past. Now as we are going more lean, etc., etc. So uh, the less Merlot, the, the less you have that. So I try to reduce it as much as possible, the Merlot. But in some vintages, it's good to have it. It makes the wine more... In 2008, we have like 15% of Merlot, the highest percentage in Lodovico never been done, and the people liked it very much. So commercially, the Merlot always is a selling point. I mean, it makes it easier for a lot of drinker. But I try to stay in my way that I set it up, and uh, it might be less commercial, but people of taste, they like it regardless very much. So what's it like working with your brother this time? Because really, you didn't work together before. No, we didn't, uh, and I'm very happy. I think so. We, no, I'm very happy to do it this time because he is extraordinarily uh, advisor and capable financial person. He has a great talent in skill in that. And uh, when you at the beginning at the Bizerno, I made a couple of mistakes, you know, with the bank and uh, you know financially. And he is there to correct the thing, to make it going, to to have people controlling the, the thing. And he is very good in that. I mean, the life that he has done and the success that he has achieved tells you a lot about his capacity because it's the talent of someone who wanted to grow, to make more acquisition. He likes to make deals. He likes to make financial intrigue and stuff like that. He's very good and talented, and I admire that element that I don't have at all, so I need him to for that, and he probably can take some advice from me when it goes to creativity. What we should could have done from the beginning, it's happening now at the end of our career. We could have done that at the beginning, but uh, my father, uh, coming from the generation that he was, he was using a word that uh, in Latin is say dividere e impera. You know what that means. And so I think so he has used that because he didn't want the the younger generation to be too close. It would have probably um, reduced his power. And they wanted to be 
in control until the end. So they were they wanted to create rivalry instead of union. That was the mentality of that generation, unfortunately. They they fucked up uh, various family with that system, and uh, and so now we are paying the consequences. By the end of the of our days, we say, okay, let's you know, we have proved, we have done. Let's get something together. You can do this, I can do that. Let's put the forces together. And so I think so. It works up well. What do you tell your daughter is important in life? I mean, what do you when you talk to her? What do you tell her? What I tell her is that don't feel obliged to follow what has been done before you. Don't feel the pressure about that. Uh, do whatever you like, but don't lose your time in stupidity. Try to concentrate in things that they are that make sense. I'm not, you know, asking for you to become a wine lady by all means, but you know, if you like it, it will be there for you. So how do you see the role of your family in the history of Italian wine? I mean, now at this point of your career, when you think of Antonori and Italian wine, how do you see those two things? I see the, the Antonori being, as my father started to be uh, recognized in many countries. The story has gone on. My brother has done it even much more deep and more pronounced in the same philosophy of my father, to be an, a brand worldwide and to be recognized as probably not the crew, the crew, but uh, a very serious company that you, you never get bad surprises. The quality is there. I think so they have done, uh, for the history of Italian wine, Antinori has done certainly, and is a very important company for the Italian wine uh, because they, they became more international. That's important to get away from the provinciality that Italy has suffering a lot. Provincialism, you know, localized localismo we call it. They they have the problem in Italy will be localismo, and Antinori has one of the company who became more internationally and and have the capacity to be you know from Russia, and that's important. And then the Tignanello is definitely a very very important benchmark in the Italian wine scenario. Itignanello for me is really the name of the game for the Antinori company. There is Solaya, there is Cervaro, but Itignanello is the brand. I can see it from Tokyo. I can see it in uh, first class from Swiss Air. Some friend of mine flew in Swiss Air from class. They had it. Mm, you can see it in a restaurant in London, in a business meeting. Before it would have been a French Chateau second crew. Now they have Tignanello. So I've seen uh, Tignanello really, I have an, an eyes for seeing things. And I tell you that Tignanello is really well positioned as a perception and very good. Tignanello is really the masterpiece of the whole, uh, you know, t- paintings. Uh, I think so it's contemporary in a way what Antinori is doing is making wine accessible, uh, with a good price and good drinkability and uh, and easy to drink when they come on the market without waiting so long you know and this is is a format that pays off at the end of his career ludovico antonori has found a new beginning thank you very much for being here today thank you very much uh, levi ludovico antonori of tenuta di bizerno in the upper marama of tuscany in italy all Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.